Hello and welcome to episode number four of Story Talk. Today I'd like to talk to you about Pride and Prejudice and specifically about the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice released in 1995 starring Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy and Jennifer L. as Elizabeth Bennet. Among Pride and Prejudice fans, I think that this is easily the most favorite version of all the Pride and Prejudices. It's not technically a movie since it was released in episodes for TV airing, but it does play a lot like a movie and so it's often compared to movies. And its only real rival is the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice released as an actual movie. But in my opinion, the 2005 version really only has a couple of small advantages over the BBC version in 1995, but the acting and the writing and the adaptation quality of the older version is far superior to any other version out there. So if you are going to experiment with watching Pride and Prejudice, with analyzing Pride and Prejudice, watch the BBC version. That's the version I'll be using mostly for reference with some insights added from the book. And then if you really get into Pride and Prejudice and you just can't get enough of Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth, then watch the 2005 version as well because it does have a lot of gorgeous cinematography, a lot of gorgeous scenery. I think the Jane actress in the 2005 version definitely has a more noticeable and arresting presence as a beautiful actress in the movie, in addition to acting so sweet and humble. It really matches the description of Jane in the book. And if I could just mesh those those parts, the, the beautiful scenery and maybe a little bit of the Jane magic from the 2005 and bring it back into the 1995 version, then I would say the 1995 version really is perfect. But even as it is, it is very nearly perfect. The adaptation manages to capture all of the significant story beats from the book, stay very true to the Regency era costuming, the Regency era mentalities, the Regency era ethics, while still having acting that is very accessible to a modern audience. And that's something that I think other adaptations have missed. Either the adaptations are too formal and wooden, and it really feels like the actors are just puppeteering lines from the books, or the story is so simplified and so streamlined, as I think is the case for the, the 2005 version, that it misses a lot of the essential character development that happens over the course of the five hours that you spend with the BBC version. You don't get to feel the same buildup of tension or the same victorious resolution of those tensions with just a two-hour movie as opposed to the five-hour version. There's just not time to spend with those characters and to really understand where they're coming from and what they are motivated by and also how they are trying to achieve their goals within the world that they have been placed. And the world for Pride and Prejudice is super important. 
I almost like to talk about Pride and Prejudice as if it's a high fantasy novel. Not because it's fictional, but in high fantasy, you step into a world that is completely foreign to our own world with different sets of rules, different sets of thinking paradigms, different understandings of history. And that's kind of what you get by stepping into a Regency era story as told by Jane Austen. Of course, Jane Austen lived in the Regency era, so she wasn't conscious of any of these parameters about the world. She just wrote in the world that she knew. But to us, it's a very foreign world. It's a world where women are not allowed to go to school. They aren't allowed to have professions. There are clear distinctions between the classes and not distinctions that people want to give up. It is heavily motivated by bloodlines, by nobility, by royalty, and secondarily by money. Usually the royalty in ages past, even ages past before the Regency era, the royalty lines were the ones that had the money. And in the Regency era, that's still mostly true. But a lot of the tension that we feel in Pride and Prejudice and in other Jane Austen works is the tension between the rising influence of trade and the redistribution of wealth through tradesmen and merchants clashing with the weakening yet still very stubborn and very influential bloodlines that come from nobility and royalty and landowning gentleman lines. Smack in the middle of this conflict, we find Elizabeth Bennet, who is the daughter of a respectable, though not extremely wealthy, landowning gentleman. She has four sisters. She's the second of the five of them. And all five of them are bound by the rules of the class to which they have been born. That is to say the gentlemanly class, the upper class, but they are at the bottom of the pile in the upper class. And so all of them are seeking to marry up, but don't have very much to offer to a husband, except as Elizabeth says, their charms. They have little more than their charms to recommend them. And that's because their father was a bit short-sighted in his planning for their family and also because the legal structure of the time meant that their home and their house and their father's estate which is bringing in the money every year because he's a landowning gentleman and for the gentleman who owned land they were getting money from the land being rented that they owned so the money that their father is bringing in to keep them in the upper class is all going to be inherited away from these five daughters. They basically have no inheritance except for a, a little bit that their mother brings to the table from the beginning of her marriage. I don't understand enough about the Regency era legal works to explain all of that, but to make it short and sweet, they don't have a big dowry to offer to a wealthy husband whom they would want to marry. So they have to depend 
almost entirely upon their accomplishments. And that is a very loaded term for Regency era women, which we'll come back to in a second. They have to rely on their accomplishments and their personal charm in the social sphere. You could say the dating sphere, although dating wasn't really the same. It wouldn't be like we understand dating. So it's probably easier just to not call it dating. In the social sphere, they have to rely on their their talents as a conversant, as a card player, as a dancer, as a charming and elegant companion, etc. Now to go back to accomplishments, the reasons accomplishments are important in the Regency era are because the women of this time were not allowed to be educated in schools. They were allowed to have governesses, but since our family, the Bennets, of which Elizabeth is a part, their family is at the bottom of the upper class and they don't have enough money to hire a governess or maybe they just didn't have inclination. But in any case, they don't have a governess, which means that all of their education has basically been self-motivated. Jane and Elizabeth Bennett, the two oldest girls, have done a little bit better than the other girls because they have read a lot of books. And this has improved their minds substantially. But reading was only one of the ways that a woman was accomplished in these days. The other ways were that she learned to play piano, she learned to sing, she learned to dance very well, she she would sew, crochet, embroider, paint screens, all of these kinds of arts and craftsy things, but not crafty in a meaningless direction. They all had purposes. All of these activities had purposes. They were mostly domestic edification purposes. They would use their embroidery to embroider the cushions of their house or the pillowcases or the comforters or the duvets or whatever. And they would also do things like learn to mend clothing. Even those of the upper classes learned how to mend clothing because that was such a regular need in every household. They would learn how to decorate hats and how to decorate shoes because, of course, they weren't buying shoes and hats fresh every time they wanted a new fashion. They would take their old shoes or their old hats and try to redecorate them or spiff them up in a way that looked more fashionable. They also, the young women of the day, often learned how to speak different languages, such as French and German, especially, sometimes Italian. And the more accomplishments a woman had, the more desirable she was thought to be for marriage. This was probably partly because the more accomplishments she had, the more visible she would be in the social sphere. For example, if a young woman who knew how to play piano and sing, such as the Bennett daughters all do, although they know how to play and sing in varying degrees, if they go to a social outing and there is a need for music, then any of those girls can sit down and play the piano to entertain the entire room. And she gets some notice that way, some approbation that way. If, as in Pride and Prejudice, one of the daughters is named Mary and she's very accomplished, so it says in, in music, although she is less accomplished in her mental faculties, 
She's not very observant, but she is a very skilled pianist. And while she's at social gatherings, her sister, Lydia, her youngest sister, will often come and ask her or come and demand that she start playing dancing music so that they can all dance. And of course, the dancing was another one of the talents that you would acquire as an accomplished woman of the Regency era. And the dances too were very athletic. They weren't as tame as many of the dances seen in the BBC version. That's maybe one other area which the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice excels is that the dances were serious athletic endeavors where the dancers had to know the moves, they had to be listening to the music, they had to be in tune with each other, and they had to be able to talk while they were remembering all of these footworks and look graceful while they were performing all of these moves. There were, of course, varying degrees of athleticism in the dance, but in the BBC version, we mostly see very tame dances. And in the 2005 version, we see a lot of the more energetic dances. The only things Regency era young women didn't consider respectable accomplishments were things like cooking and gardening, cleaning, any kind of strenuous or dirty labor. Those were things that you left for servants to do, assuming you had enough income to support servants, which if you were in the upper classes and attaining accomplishments in order to find a desirable husband, then you were. You were in the position to afford servants. This explains some of the comments that are made in passing by characters such as Mrs. Bennett when Mr. Collins comes to town and Mr. Collins is asking to which of his fair cousins he can thank for the delicious meal. And Mrs. Bennett haughtily responds that none of her girls have to work in the kitchen because they make well enough to afford a cook. And Mr. Collins, in what he thinks is a gracious response, but is a borderline offensive response, says, says, wonderful, I'm so glad that the estate is, is large enough to afford such an income. And since Mr. Collins is going to inherit the estate, it's a rather uncomfortable reminder that the estate is only temporarily belonging to the Bennets on its way to Mr. Collins. So let's come back to Elizabeth and how she is stuck in the middle of this, this conflict of worlds where she is born in the Regency era. She's born to a landowning gentleman. She is in the upper class, but she's at the bottom of the upper class. And Elizabeth has another quirk about her, which is that she wants to marry for love and not only wants to marry, but thinks that that is the only worthwhile reason for marrying which is extremely unusual at the time. It's not that women didn't want to fall in love or didn't want to marry the person that they were in love with, but marriage in the Regency era was maybe two-thirds business transaction and one-third emotional transaction. So you can kind of think of these marriages more like business mergers than like emotional engagements. And what is really unusual about Elizabeth is that she comes into the story with an attitude that marriage should be about 
compatibility of character and emotional fulfillment and love rather than about money and class maneuvering. This gets her into quite a bit of trouble with the characters around her because this is a very unusual view and she happens to share this view with Jane, her her older sister. But Jane is so much more soft-spoken about it that she doesn't have nearly the number of conflicts that Elizabeth does about the appropriateness or the propriety of seeking marriage for love rather than for advantage. And not only seeking, but also denying possible marriages because they don't satisfy her emotional requirements, even if they do satisfy the outward financial expectations of the time. So if you need a little brief overview of the whole Pride and Prejudice story, it goes something like this. Elizabeth Bennett is a member of this family of five daughters with a respectable landowning gentleman father and a mother who is rather preoccupied with getting all of her daughters married, no matter what kind of situation they marry into. Her only goal is that they get married so that they don't end up homeless after their father dies and the estate is entailed away. This family lives at an estate called Longbourn, which is in a country district called Hertfordshire. And to Hertfordshire come two rich young men. One is renting a home, a manor home in Hertfordshire. His name is Charles Bingley. And the other is visiting his friend or rather accompanying his friend as his friend moves in. And his name is Fitzwilliam Darcy. And in the Regency period, no one made really fast moves or quick trips if they could help it. So Mr. Darcy comes with Mr. Bingley into the area and he stays for a while. And while they are in Hertfordshire, Mr. Bingley starts to form an attachment or fall in love with Jane Bennett, the oldest of the Bennett sisters. Meanwhile, Mr. Darcy offends Elizabeth Bennett on their first meeting on a couple of of counts. He makes a couple of moves that she finds very offensive and thus triggers a an intense prejudice from Elizabeth that forms the tension ground for the two of them, for Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth, for basically the rest of the movie. After he offends Elizabeth in these first encounters, however, Mr. Darcy starts to change his mind a little bit about Elizabeth. He starts to watch her. She's very witty. She's very clever. She's very funny. She is somewhat accomplished in that she plays and she sings and she dances very well, although she always disclaims her ability to play and sing very well. She, she defers to her other sisters as better than she is at those things. Nevertheless, Mr. Darcy starts to pay attention to Elizabeth and she's kind of intriguing to him because she doesn't kowtow to his riches as easily as most of the other people that he knows. She doesn't try to gain his favor all the time. She's not always simpering for his attention. 
And from the book, we can infer these things. But in the movie, it's even more obvious that Elizabeth kind of always has this twinkle in her eye. Like she's always got this private joke going on about what's happening. And Mr. Darcy is really intrigued by Elizabeth. And his interest in her is kind of unwilling because he knows that she's from a lower upper class family, meaning that she is lower than he is because he's one of the upper upper class. He's not nobility, he's not royalty, but he is pretty close. And he has a lot of assumptions about what is expected of him, what is okay for him to do, how it is appropriate for him to act who it is okay for him to marry or who it is okay for him to be interested in. And Elizabeth is not on any of those lists. However, she's still interesting to him. He still watches her. And during his stay in Hertfordshire, he makes gradual attempts to compliment her, to ingratiate himself to her. They aren't very serious attempts because first he has this serious prejudice against lower classes and so he doesn't think it's okay for him to be interested in her, much less actually courting her or showing formal interest in her. And he also has a serious failing in that he is not socially at ease, meaning that he errs on the side of being blunt and overly reserved rather than the popular fashion at the time, which was to be very jovial and lighthearted and, and interested or approving of everything. His friend, Mr. Bingley, is much more like this. And so Hertfordshire instantly likes Mr. Bingley and they instantly dislike Mr. Darcy because he doesn't want to like them. So understandably, they, they would not reciprocate very easily, even if he is rich. But he also can't seem to help wanting to be in on this joke with Elizabeth. And so he makes several attempts in private conversations and at after dinner parties and at balls to try and learn more about Elizabeth. Most of these attempts are pretty unsuccessful, but all of them have a certain fizzle about them. They Every time Darcy and Elizabeth come to interact, there's this feeling of swords clashing, of maybe even lightsabers clashing would be a good analogy because there are just sparks all over the place. And people can feel it, but they don't they but they don't really make sense as a couple. They aren't interested in each other in the typical way. Mr. Bingley and Jane are interested in each other in very tangible, expected ways. They sit together, they eat together, they laugh at each other's jokes. And Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth are not like that. Usually when they're talking, they are crossing wits, trying to prove who is right, who is more right, who has the better character, who has the upper hand. And it's all very subtle, of course, because it's, it's all couched within the Regency era dialogue, which has to maintain certain parameters of politeness. So they manage to keep all of this within these parameters, but they manage to just grate on each other and, and spark each other to life in a way that no one else in the community really does. Not very long after... Their arrival in Hertfordshire, though, Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy leave 
And it's primarily because of the Bennett family that Mr. Darcy convinces Mr. Bingley to leave because he can tell that Mr. Bingley really likes Jane and he can tell that they are headed for a more serious relationship. And he can also see that Jane's family, the Bennett family, is not of the same social standing and does not have the same manner as many of those in the upper, upper classes, as many of the friends of Mr. Darcy and Mr. Bingley. And to prevent his friend from marrying down or from making an imprudent match with Jane Bennett, he convinces Charles Bingley to leave the countryside and go to London, where he can be away from Jane and hopefully uh, get over her and move on and find someone more suited to his station. And Mr. Darcy's secondary motive is probably that he wants to get away from Elizabeth too, because he can feel that he's headed for too much interest in Elizabeth as well. And so he tries to get himself out of that situation too, so that he can move on. When they leave, it's a sad day for the Bennets because Jane is sincerely in love with Mr. Bingley and there would have been no complications or no objections to accepting a proposal from him on her family's side. So to have him leave the countryside with no sign of coming back is very disappointing for Jane. But the story isn't over yet because Elizabeth soon afterwards travels to visit a friend and runs into Mr. Darcy again as he's visiting one of his relatives. And their continued friction and escalating tension in in that period lead Mr. Darcy to propose unexpectedly to Elizabeth. And proposals in Pride and Prejudice, are as much about the finances as they are about the feelings. And they have a lot of words to talk about feelings because they recognized the mounting importance of emotional commitment in marriage and not just financial security in marriage. But when Mr. Darcy proposes, his conversation is mostly about the inappropriate financial merger that this marriage would be. And as an afterthought, he adds that he is kind of desperately in love with Elizabeth and so it can't be helped. He, and she just has to propose because that's the only option for him. That's the only way of resolving his emotional problems is to swallow the bitter pill of this financial mismatch between their families even though it will be a disgrace and it's against his own character, blah, 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 blah. It's a horribly awkward scene and it's amazing that Elizabeth responds as well as she does because she's still very polite at first, but she says no because this does not match up with her paradigm. She wants to marry for love. She wants to marry for compatibility. She wants to marry for emotional security before financial security. And when she says no, Mr. Darcy is kind of staggered because the the deal, so to speak, is so much in her favor for him to propose to her. She would have so many advantages by marrying up into his social class rather than staying in her own. So he is a little bit taken aback by her refusal. He kind of pokes and, and prods her to figure out why she's saying no. And once she's 
prodded to fully explain her reasons, she gives them, and they both leave angry, hurt, dissatisfied, and bitter about the exchange. But Mr. Darcy is a little bit of a bulldog. He won't let go of things until they're fully resolved or fully explained. And so even though his proposal has been rejected, he takes the reasons that Elizabeth gives him as to why she won't marry him, and he writes a very detailed letter refuting the reasons or explaining the reasons for his acting as he did. And this letter changes Elizabeth a bit. She doesn't regret saying no to Mr. Darcy at first, and she doesn't even like him at first, but she does stubbornly believe a lot of what he says, which is more than she thought she would do. And once she starts to believe what he says, her perspective on other things begin to change. He explains some things about their mutual relations that change her perspective on those relations. And then later on, Elizabeth actually takes a trip and as a tourist goes to see Mr. Darcy's house, which is called Pemberley. And there she gets all of these firsthand accounts of Mr. Darcy that completely contradict her own prejudice that she's been building up and nurturing against Mr. Darcy. And seeing that she was wrong about some of their mutual relations and that she was wrong about her first impressions of Mr. Darcy and seeing that maybe there is a lot more to him than she originally thought and that he makes more sense and has a more noble character than most of the people that she knows gradually begins to sink into her mind and change her heart about the idea of marrying Mr. Darcy. Of course, at this time, it was very unusual for proposals to get rejected and even more unusual for those proposals to be renewed after they were rejected. So she can't realistically entertain the hopes of him renewing his proposals, but she does anyway. And when she runs into Mr. Darcy while they're touring his grounds and he shows himself to be a very different man than she thought he was at the beginning, she gets interested in Mr. Darcy in some of the same ways that he has been interested in her for a long time. They spend a couple of days or nurturing these mutual but tentative feelings of interest in each other while Elizabeth is staying near Pemberley and Mr. Darcy introduces her to his sister and she, Elizabeth, sees Mr. Bingley again and all of this renewed social interaction bring them together on a much closer level than they were when Mr. Darcy actually proposed. Unfortunately, just as it seems like Mr. Darcy might actually renew his proposal and that Elizabeth might be prepared to accept him, Elizabeth gets some horrible news from home. She has to leave that part of the country right away. And Mr. Darcy, when he hears about her news, reverts back to his very reserved self, which is easily misunderstood by Elizabeth to have different motives than he actually does. Thus, when they part ways, Elizabeth assumes that he is leaving because he is so ashamed to be in her presence with the disgrace that is coming upon her family. 
Well, what is actually happening is that Mr. Darcy, in his reserved, taciturn way, is already trying to figure out how to fix the problem or what he can do to remedy the problem that is afflicting Elizabeth. If we fast forward in the story a little bit, Mr. Darcy does end up saving the day for Elizabeth, although he does it in secret. He doesn't tell Elizabeth what he's doing, but he ends up saving the day by by essentially salvaging the reputation of her entire family and by shielding her and her family from a permanent tarnish of disgrace in society. But like I said, he does this in secret, so Elizabeth has to go to others to find out the truth about what really happened. And when she does find out the truth, she isn't even allowed to write to him and express her thanks. I think that there must have been some stipulation that women don't write to men because that never happens in Pride and Prejudice. Men can write to women, although that's unusual, but women, the women in Pride and Prejudice never write to men. Thus, Elizabeth is forced to just wait and watch and bide her time and stay on the lookout for an opportunity to say thank you to Mr. Darcy. And when the opportunity finally does come, it's because Mr. Darcy has brought Mr. Bingley back to the countryside and has also encouraged Mr. Bingley to propose to Jane if he if he does love her. Uh, Mr. Bingley does propose to Jane. And while the two of them, while Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy are visiting the Bennett family, the two eldest girls end up going on this walk with the two men. And Mr. Bingley and Jane are, are already engaged. And so they're absorbed in their own conversation, which opens the way for Elizabeth to have a private word with Mr. Darcy and to earnestly thank him for the service that he has done for their family. Mr. Darcy seems a little bit surprised that she knows, but also not not unpleased. Although Mr. Darcy is kind of shy. And so he he manages to get out that, you know, if she must thank him, then she should do it only for herself because he only thought of her anyway. And she takes this in slowly and the silence is broken again by him asking about her feelings on the proposal that he made the previous spring. At this point, we're in the fall, but he had proposed in the spring and he said, if your feelings are what they were last spring, then tell me at once and I'll never bring it up again. But of course, Elizabeth has gone through a big transformation since the first proposal and she is ready to accept the proposal at this point. And they both have this stunned yet happy yet reserved silence in which you can feel how much their world is affecting their relationship because they aren't allowed to be really effusive about it. They aren't allowed to jump up and down. None of that would be proper. They just have to quietly resonate with the new happiness that they have and figure out what they can say that is still in those parameters of the of the Regency dialogue. And so they start talking about the proposal and they resolve some of the things and you realize how much they have contributed to changing the other person, that Elizabeth has really rubbed some of the rough edges off of Mr. Darcy's 
prejudice to the lower classes and and Mr. Darcy has exposed to Elizabeth how much more there can be to one person than initially meets the eye or maybe we should say initially meets the conversation because that's usually where she forms her first impressions is not just based on the look but upon upon the first thing she hears from a person in any case they do get engaged they do get married jane and elizabeth both get to marry in ways that are both financially secure and emotionally compatible and it's a happy it's a happy ending for everybody except for maybe the youngest sister lydia who is the one who almost brought disgrace upon the whole family she doesn't have as happy an ending but it's kind of her own doing so <laughs> she's allowed to reap the the fruits of her own silliness so that is the super abbreviated version of pride and prejudice i know it didn't seem abbreviated but it's a very abbreviated version and it's much more fun to watch it in the bbc version because pride and prejudice is an extremely fertile ground for subtext subtext in story writing is what we call the conversation below the conversation there is actual dialogue that happens in a conversation but there's a whole another level of understanding that happens and of storytelling that happens below the conversation and because the regency era had all of these parameters about what it was okay to say and what it wasn't okay to say and how it was okay to say it and when and etc because all of these stipulations were already in place for the regency era it makes Pride and Prejudice and the rest of the Jane Austen novels extremely rich in subtext because there are lots of significant things said within the real conversations, but there's even more significance in the subtext of the conversation. And if you have not practiced reading subtext into your movies or into your conversations. It's really fun to start in Pride and Prejudice with reading the subtext for Mr. Bennett because basically everything he says in the movie is not to be taken at face value. Mr. Bennett is Elizabeth's father and he has this twinkle in his eye too in much the same way that Elizabeth does where he makes comments throughout the whole movie to many different people that have all of this subtext attached to them. And it's almost like he's speaking a foreign language sometimes in his social conversations because he's having a conversation and usually he's having the conversation with Elizabeth, who's on the same intellectual level as he is. Usually he's having this conversation with Elizabeth through subtext that nobody else even picks up on. And to watch the film, even just for Mr. Bennett's subtext, is really funny. And you'll know that you've gotten it if you can end Pride and Prejudice and say, wow, that was such a funny movie. And then you'll have to stop yourself and think like, wait, no, that was a romantic drama. But nevertheless, the subtext makes it really funny. And it's also what drives a lot of the tension and a lot of the romance and a lot of the suspense of the movie once you know how to watch for subtext in the other characters. In helping with the subtext, it really makes a difference to know more about the Regency era and about the customs and things. 
that we're creating this world for them. Because if you know the rules of the world, then you know when the rules are being broken. And when you know when the rules of the Regency era are being broken, you can start to play around with what that means. And you can start to watch how the characters notice that those rules are being broken. And the characters are making different inferences about those broken rules and forming assumptions based on those broken rules that may or may not be correct. For example, in the BBC version, there is a moment when Elizabeth meets a new man. His name is Mr. Wickham. He ends up being the main villain of the story. And I use villain kind of lightly because it's not a stage villain so much as someone of extremely poor morals who selfishly endangers everyone except for himself as he goes about his life. And as Elizabeth meets Mr. Wickham, Mr. Darcy rides up on his horse with Mr. Bingley, and Mr. Bingley dismounts from his horse upon seeing them and begins to talk to Jane, but Mr. Darcy does not approach once he sees that Wickham is with them, and Elizabeth watches as Mr. Darcy and Wickham make eye contact, and Mr. Wickham tips his hat to Mr. Darcy, which is the gentlemanly way of acknowledging someone that you know. It's kind of the minimum viable way of acknowledging someone that you know. And Mr. Darcy hesitates and barely nods in reply, barely tips his hat in return before riding off without speaking to them anymore. And Elizabeth notices this whole conversation. And if you understand the rules about greeting acquaintances, you'll understand that this was a pretty big breach of etiquette because obviously they knew each other and Mr. Darcy didn't even say hello to Mr. Wickham. When Elizabeth talks to Mr. Wickham later in a subsequent scene, Mr. Wickham spins this tale for her about how wronged he has been by Mr. Darcy. And he really plays on Elizabeth's prejudice for Mr. Darcy that has already formed and uses that to wriggle his way into her good graces. And Elizabeth, for her part, is kind of a sitting duck for being used in this way because she already formed this prejudice against Mr. Darcy. And it's not until much later that she understands the content or the subtext of what actually passed between Mr. Darcy and Mr. Wickham. Because what she assumes happened between Mr. Wickham and Mr. Darcy is that Mr. Darcy was super jealous of Mr. Wickham and resents Mr. Wickham for no really good reason other than that Wickham is a lower class. And poor Mr. Wickham has to bear the brunt of being not as rich as Mr. Darcy, even though they grew up in the same house together from different parentage. What actually happened, however, is that Mr. Darcy saw the man who had been trying to seduce and elope with his sister in order to gain her fortune and possibly to execute revenge 
on himself, on Mr. Darcy. So what he sees when he sees Mr. Wickham is a fortune hunter, a womanizer, a debtor, a traitor, more or less, to his own family. While what Elizabeth reads into the subtext of this exchange between Wickham and Darcy is Mr. Darcy being proud, aloof, arrogant, ungenerous, etc. Those moments are all through Pride and Prejudice. You, you can turn on any episode, basically any time in any episode, and find rich areas of subtext to practice on. So to take down some more of the barriers to understanding that subtext, there are a couple of things that play major roles in Pride and Prejudice. One is the role of money. And to us in the modern world, it's difficult to comprehend exactly what the monetary figures mean because the conversion into modern currency from Regency era currency is pretty rough. The spending value of the money was very different in the Regency era, as was, as was the inflation rate and the expenses rate for the houses and the clothes and everything. It was all just very different. So in looking for a hard and fast figure to convert the numbers from Pride and Prejudice, and as our first example, I'll just use Mr. Darcy's salary, which is clear in Pride and Prejudice that it's a very high salary. His salary is, or rather his income, is 10,000 pounds a year. And everybody gapes at 10,000 pounds a year. They just can't, can't even believe that he's one of those super rich people. So we know that 10,000 pounds a year is significant. But in trying to find a conversion for 10,000 pounds a year, I found everything from 300, just under 340,000 dollars ish per year to 12 million dollars per year. Like that's how inaccurate or variable the conversion rates are from that time to this time, because you could just consider it based on inflation rates and exchange rates. Or you could consider it based on the spending power and the spending value of the money that was being earned then versus the money that would be earned now to maintain that kind of a lifestyle. In the end, I just think it's easier to conceptualize the money for Pride and Prejudice by adding two zeros onto the end of whatever figure they say and then imagining it in whatever currency, pounds or, or dollars, whatever you use. So... For our example of Mr. Darcy, instead of thinking of it as 10,000 pounds, I just like to think of it as a million dollars because that's a lot of money, but it's also not so much money that he doesn't have to be careful about it, especially when he's spending a lot of money paying for his grounds, for his servants, for his travel, for his clothes, for his uh, sister's governess, for their expenses out of town, etc. He has a lot of expenses and a million dollars would be more than enough to cover a good lifestyle. Although he would probably still be conscious of where the money was going since he's maintaining a good lifestyle over many years. For Mr. Bingley, his friend who makes 5,000 pounds a year, we can just think of that as $500,000, which would still be lots of money, especially compared to the Bennett's income, which is 
£2,000 a year or conceptually $200,000. If these five girls are coming from a household that's a wealthy-ish household making $200,000 a year, then marrying a man who makes more than twice that much or five times that much would be a significant step up, a significant boon to their social standing and their personal expenditures. For further reference, we know that after Elizabeth's father dies, Elizabeth would be making, or rather receiving, that Elizabeth would receive 40 pounds per year after her father dies and the estate is entailed away. Now, $4,000 or pounds per year would not be very much, especially compared with $200,000 per year with her father's income. It wouldn't be enough to keep her in the wealthy classes. The minimum expected income to be a part of the lesser gentry, and gentry just means of the gentlemanly classes, would be three to four hundred pounds a year, but that's the absolute minimum. So Elizabeth's 40 pounds per year definitely wouldn't be enough. She would basically be destitute after her father passed. And for uh, further reference, 50 pounds per year, so more than Elizabeth would receive after her father's death, 50 pounds per year would be about the equivalent of working for minimum wage at the time. In the Regency era, you would receive about 50 pounds per year, which is obviously also not, not very much, and not enough to make her part of the wealthy classes or what part of the classes that would be noticed by other gentlemen. Thus, we understand a little bit better maybe some of Mrs. Bennett's urgency to get her daughters married to someone in a respectable station before their father passes on because after he passes they're they're in trouble if none of them are married luckily at the end of the movie or show when jane and elizabeth have both married very well mrs bennett hopefully can kind of relax because with two daughters married into wealthy families her other daughters and herself are going to be taken care of no matter what even after Mr. Bennett dies, because they can go and live with Jane or they can live with Elizabeth and and be taken care of until the end of their lives without a problem. So the money issue now is hopefully a little bit easier to understand for Pride and Prejudice. Another one of the barriers to understanding this story might be the logistics of everything, because Britain, and especially Regency-era Britain, had a, a different way of talking about geography than most of us do here in the United States. In Pride and Prejudice, we have names for not only the towns, which would be expected, the towns or the cities, such as London or Meryton, which is a town near nearby to the girls. We also have names for the houses, so Longbourn is the estate where Mr. Bennett lives and his daughters. Longbourn is the house where they are, are living. Netherfield Park is the estate or the manor house that 
Mr. Bingley rents for a while while he is in the countryside. Lucas Lodge is another one that's in that same countryside. Lucas Lodge belongs to Elizabeth's good friend, Charlotte Lucas, who ends up marrying one of the other characters. Mr. Darcy's home, which is in a different part of the country, is called Pemberley. And there's another significant one too, which is called Rosings Park, which is in, a, in another different part of the country. Then we come to the third type of name, which is for a region or for a countryside. So the countryside where Mr. Bingley and Mr. Darcy come and where the Bennets are living at Longbourn. Longbourn and Netherfield Park and Lucas Lodge are all part of the region called Hertfordshire. Hertfordshire is a real region in England, but the rest of the names are made up. The rest of the names are fictional for the story. Likewise, where Mr. Darcy lives is a region called Derbyshire. And within Derbyshire is Pemberley, the fictional estate of Mr. Darcy, and Lampton, a town which is also fictional, as well as Climpton, another town, and some other names. But it, it helps to conceptualize this before going into Pride and Prejudice. Otherwise, you get in to the story and you get a little bit lost with all of the names that they're throwing around. The essential thing to remember is that there are several main regions described in Pride and Prejudice. One is Hertfordshire, and that's the most important. One is Derbyshire, where Mr. Darcy lives. The lake country, which isn't visited in Pride and Prejudice, but is referred to, is farther north in England. Then there's the area of Kent, which is south, just south of London, and the area of Sussex, which is south of Kent. Then within these regions, you know there are several main cities. So in Derbyshire, the main town not quite a city, but the main town that we know about is Lambton. That's where Elizabeth stays. In Hertfordshire, the main town is Meryton, which is where the regiment is quartered for the winter. Below Hertfordshire, but maybe before Kent, is London, which is often referred to in Pride and Prejudice as town or the town. It's not always referred to by its name of London, but that's because everyone understood it in the Regency era to be town. So when Mr. Darcy and Mr. Bingley remove to town, they leave Netherfield Park and they go to town. They're going to London. They're going to stay in London. And London, of course, is where the royalty lives and especially where court is. And you'll hear, hear court mentioned a couple of times and it's always a a good thing for for people to have more associations or more connections to court or to have a place to stay in town in one of the good parts of London. And then the last two cities that are notable for Pride and Prejudice are Huntsford, which is right next to Rosings Park. Huntsford is the town that includes the area where Mr. Collins and later Charlotte Lucas live. And the last town is called Brighton, and it's on the very southern part of England. It's on the seashore. It's in the region of Sussex. 
And when the regiment leaves Meriton and goes to Brighton, they are going all the way down south, all the way through London, through Huntsford, or rather past all of those things. They're going past London, past Huntsford, and down to Brighton. As an additional note of interest, Jane Austen didn't have a very good opinion of Brighton. She went there several times and didn't write very fondly of it. And I just wrote down one of her quotes because I thought it was kind of amusing. In 1796, she she wrote in a letter, Here I am once more in this scene of dissipation and vice, and I begin already to find my morals corrupted. Thus, it makes sense that she placed Brighton as the site of, of Lydia's disgrace and Lydia's corruption of morals because she didn't have a very high opinion of Brighton either. As maybe our last note on the understanding side of Pride and Prejudice, we should also talk about the social ladder. At the very top of the social ladder was the royalty and the nobility. Underneath the royalty and the nobility was the landed gentry meaning that they were referred to as sir or lady or mister or missus. These were the baronets and the knights and the esquires and the squires and the formal gentlemen, the land-owning gentlemen. So it's the bottom of this class that Mr. Bennett falls because he is a landed gentleman, but he isn't a wealthy landed gentleman. Thus, when another character in the movie attacks Elizabeth's presumption in aspiring to marry Mr. Darcy, the character chastises Elizabeth for attempting to quit the sphere in which she was brought up. Elizabeth retorts that Mr. Darcy is a gentleman and her father is a gentleman. She is a gentleman's daughter and Mr. Darcy is a gentleman. And therefore, by marrying Mr. Darcy, she is not quitting the sphere in which she is brought up. This character then brings up another point, which we won't go into in a lot of detail, but the the opposing character to Elizabeth brings up the fact that it's not just the father's line that matters in these mergers or in these marriages, even though the father's line was the one of primary visibility and of primary importance in seeking a marriage, the mother's line was also very important, at least for the people who wanted to keep the bloodlines pure. Thus, she, the other character, starts attacking Elizabeth's mother's line, which isn't as highly brought up or isn't as as well founded as her father's line in the landed gentry. After the landed gentlemen, there was a little bit of a gray area as we moved into the lower classes because there were many gentlemen's sons, especially second sons and lower, who couldn't inherit the estate because the estate was never allowed to be broken up. But they did want to have gentlemanly professions. And the cardinal sin in the social ranking was to be associated with trade. So all of the gentlemanly professions are not associated with trade. Merchants and manufacturers are the top of the lower classes, but they aren't in the upper classes unless they've sold all their business assets, given up their role in trade, and they're just using their money to live as an upper class member. 
But even those people were not very well looked upon in the society, as you can tell from some of the conversations in Pride and Prejudice, because when someone came from trade and tried to be one of the upper classes without having come from one of these gentlemanly lines, they were usually derided or spoken poorly of because they had at one time been involved with trade or had made their fortune in trade at one time. The gentlemanly professions, though, were those such as officer. You could be an officer and still be a fine gentleman, which is why the officers are often invited to the balls and parties in Hertfordshire. You could be a clergyman with a parish. You could be a justice of the peace or a judge or one of the higher professions within the law. Not a solicitor because those were part of the lower classes, but an attorney was probably okay for the gentlemanly classes. And the last was a doctor in medicine. And you can tell that all of these professions required education, therefore they required money to get started. And especially for the the first two, and it could even be extended into the the law professions, but for an officer and for a clergyman, there is some element of ownership that establishes their rank. An officer would own his commission. And a clergyman would basically own his parish after he had been given the living, so to speak, by the wealthy estate owner. None of these are as good as owning land in the social ranking, but they are better than being involved with trade. So being an officer was the best of the gentlemanly professions, and after that was the clergy, and after that was the law. The medicine seems to have been kind of variable, whether it was between the lower classes or the upper classes, because sometimes the doctor would be invited to socialize with the upper classes, and sometimes he wouldn't. Sometimes he would make enough money to be considered one of the upper classes, and sometimes he wouldn't. So the the medical professions or the doctors seem to have been more variable, but the at least the first three were were pretty well established. And this is why when the officers come to town, and when Mr. Collins comes to town, the officers and Mr. Collins are great options, according to Mrs. Bennett, for her girls, because her girls come from a gentlemanly family, and these are gentlemanly professions, and so she wants them to be established in a comfortable home with a respectable life, married to a husband who is in those gentlemanly classes. After the gentlemanly class, then you have the merchants, the manufacturers, the lower income merchants, the hard laborers, and eventually you get all the way down to the poor, in quotes, because that meant uh, anyone who was not making enough to support themselves or have a decent home or had to live on the streets, so orphans would have been in this situation uh, many women, unfortunately, were in this situation. Gypsies, criminals, other people would have been considered the poor class. They don't really enter into Pride and Prejudice very much, though. It's mostly about these upper classes, the, the landed gentry and the gentlemanly professions. There's a ton of symbolism and a ton of themes that you can pick out from Pride and Prejudice. And since there are too many for us to cover all of them, I think it would 
be best to just touch on a couple of them and let you watch to pick out the way that these themes or motifs have been developed for yourself. Easily the most prominent theme is the theme of pride and prejudice because much of the action of the story and much of the drama of the story is self-created or you might say self-inflicted by the main characters creating assumptions and dissolving assumptions based on what they think is going on in other characters' lives. The Regency era seems to be an especially perfect place to watch this happening, but I think it's too easy for us as modern people to watch it happening in the Regency era and to assume that we are immune from that kind of pride and prejudice in our own lives just because we have looser rules about conversation or letter writing or courtship, etc. The rules have changed a lot for the world since the Regency era, but people have not changed a lot, and there's still a significant amount of judging and assuming that goes on in regular life. And I think one of the great things about Pride and Prejudice is that it shows us many different kinds of pride and many different kinds of prejudice. Elizabeth is very prejudiced towards the upper classes. She resists liking the upper classes because she thinks that they're too good for everybody else. And so she readily detects in her acquaintances with the upper classes an arrogance and a pridefulness that are only sometimes true. Mr. Darcy, on the other hand, has this intense prejudice towards the lower classes and also an intense prejudice towards country manners or towards less refined manners than those that he is used to. This is especially ironic for Mr. Darcy because his manners seem to be a little bit rough around the edges, that he keeps making impressions that he doesn't actually mean to make and he's very stunned in his proposal when Elizabeth accuses him of ungentlemanlike behavior and that's ultimately the only thing that gets him to stop digging into her reasons for why she's refusing him is because she accuses him of being ungentlemanly and he goes through a serious period of self-reflection and self-reformation as he tries to bring his own behavior up to the standard of gentlemen that he sees he has not met with Elizabeth. We also have a prejudice in the younger Bennets against anyone who isn't an officer. They talk about how much they prefer officers, and if he's wearing regimentals, then he must be worthy of pursuing. Uh, Lydia, of course, is very blind going into her elopement with Mr. Wickham. It's not a choice that she makes based on her understanding of the world. It's not an understanding of his character. She's not like Elizabeth or Jane who who analyze very seriously the character and consistency of the men that they are considering marrying. She doesn't do any of those things. It's all about the thrill of elopement for her and, and the thrill of being married first. And she seems to have some interest in Wickham, but she also seems to have some interest in everyone. So probably more than any personal attachment to Wickham is just the fact that she loves being on the edge. She she loves being in the middle of the attention. And 
her marriage to Wickham could to a large extent be considered a product of her prejudice towards or for officers. Another great theme to analyze in Pride and Prejudice is the theme of a practical versus a happy marriage. There are a lot of conversations, especially between Elizabeth and her friends or sisters, in which they talk about the motives for marrying. And Elizabeth has projected her motives for marrying on a lot of the people around her, despite all evidence to the contrary, because she lives in the Regency era and she can clearly see that most marriages are not based on love and compatibility, but rather based on either practicality or imprudent infatuation. And Elizabeth doesn't want either of those things. Her own parents have a very imbalanced marriage, which she sees as coming from a mismatch in their characters that has been there from the beginning, and she doesn't want to end up in a marriage like her parents have, nor does she want to end up in a marriage like her friend Charlotte Lucas ends up with, which is purely a marriage of convenience or a marriage of practicality. Charlotte in the story is eminently practical. She's very intelligent, very observant, and Elizabeth assumes that Charlotte will marry for the same reasons that Elizabeth herself wants to marry. But what she doesn't take into account is that Charlotte, by the Regency era standards, is already too old to get married. She's about 27 in the story. And that would be considered a spinster age because usually the women got married between about 16 and 23 or so. And the men usually got married between the late 20s and early 40s. But women who were nearing 30 wouldn't have been considered very marriageable. And to make it even harder for Charlotte, she's not rich. She's not from a rich or a noble family. Her father has been knighted, but his background was in trade. So she doesn't have a super strong lineage background, nor does she have a big dowry to recommend her. And she's not as pretty as Elizabeth or Jane, and she's not as as witty as they are. She doesn't have that the twinkle as much as Elizabeth does. Thus, when the opportunity presents itself for her to pursue Mr. Collins, even if Mr. Collins is repulsive to li- to Lizzie because he is pompous, self-absorbed, not very intelligent, too infatuated with his patroness, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, among other things. When uh, Charlotte has the opportunity to pursue Mr. Collins for a marriage, she takes it and she accepts Mr. Collins' proposal. And Lizzie cannot understand why she would do this thing. Well, Charlotte is looking at the marriage and looking at her options. She's the oldest of several children in her family. She's not rich. She's not good looking. She's not young. And some man comes along with a good income, with good connections in the world. And she accepts his proposal because she figures that at this point, she would rather have a comfortable life than than a life of continuing to live with her parents. 
Lizzie has a hard time understanding this, but it is a good mind-broadening moment for Elizabeth to realize that there are many important aspects of marriage and that not everyone marries for the same reason, just like not everyone finds happiness for the same reason. So even though Charlotte's marriage is one primarily of practicality, she also seems relatively happy. She seems about as happy as she expected to be in marriage. Jane and Elizabeth really get to live the dream for the Regency era because they get to marry for love and for practicality. They both marry men who are very well off and they marry because they love them and are compatible with them and have long, happy, sustainable relationships with those men. There are other marriages also that we could bring into this equation, such as the Lydia Wickham marriage. Uh, you could compare it to the possible marriages that are proposed in the story, such as Wickham and Lizzie and how that would play out, or Wickham and Mary King, or Wickham and Georgiana. <laughs> Wickham definitely makes the rounds. Then there's also Elizabeth's aunt and uncle, Mr. and Mrs. Gardner as well as her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett, and many other smaller, more distant relations, such as Lady Catherine de Bourgh and her husband, which is not a relationship that's very elaborated in the movie, but in the book you get more clues about Lady Catherine's relationship. Lady Catherine de Bourgh is from a noble line, which is why you say Lady Catherine de Bourgh instead of just Lady de Bourgh. For the noble lines, the first name was added to show respect. And in her marriage, her husband respected her so much that she has full control over her estate and the estate passes through the female line. So it passes to their daughter, Andeberg, unlike the Bennett daughters. This was unusual because the women of a family often married away and took on other names and became parts of other families where the men of the family or especially the first sons of a gentleman's family held on to the name they held on to the estate they carried on the lineage in a formal way and so they were given the bulk of the inheritance in lady catherine de Bourgh's family they have a really unusual situation where her husband trusted her so much that he left everything under her control, which meant that if she ever decided to remarry, all of her assets would become her new husband's assets. And he also left the estate to be passed on to his daughter, which was a very great favor to his daughter, because even though she, uh, and a Berg in this case, even though she is sickly and otherwise not very marriageable, she has a huge fortune to offer to anyone looking for a good marriage. And the reason I think that this is a great theme to look at, especially through Pride and Prejudice, is because it, it's so far removed from the way that we usually think about practicality and happiness. We don't usually think of getting married as a choice between those things because for the most part our modern day has sided with the happiness in marriage we assume that you get married because you want to be happy with the person that you're marrying however we do make choices between practicality and happiness 
in many other areas of life that we might not think about as often. And if we consider those areas as potential marriages, as the Regency era did, it could illuminate for us the kinds of choices that we're making. Do we commit ourselves to being practical more of the time, to being comfortable, to being convenient? Or do we commit ourselves to being happy most of the time? And those two don't always have to be different from each other. We might have Charlotte Lucas moments where uh, being happy and being comfortable is the same thing. There also might be many times when those those two qualities diverge and we have to choose between them. And we have to choose whether to accept a Mr. Collins arrangement or whether to reject him and risk discomfort, but ensure the fact that we won't be committed to something that will make us unhappy. It's a little bit of an abstract theme for us to talk about here, but it is fun to think about as it applies to you personally or to us personally as viewers in watching Pride and Prejudice because we're watching these characters make decisions and make evaluations about what is important, practicality or happiness, and we can take the things that we learn from those characters to better inform our decisions about how we are committing our time or our resources to bring us practicality or happiness. This brings us to one of the most fun places to analyze Pride and Prejudice, which is in the romance of Pride and Prejudice. The story is, technically speaking, a romantic drama, and all of the other side stories and side characters and all of the ways that the world and other characters are interacting all form turbulence for Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth to overcome as they establish their relationship. I've spent a good amount of time thinking about romance in storytelling because I find it so interesting the way that we can empathize and be motivated by watching characters come towards a commitment to each other and especially a romantic commitment because usually that's something that's very personal in the real world and if someone is sharing too many details about their relationship you get really fatigued and overwhelmed and unless you know the person really well or really want to know about their story you don't care very much about all of the minute details of their fine shades of emotional understanding of the other person, etc. But in a movie, in a film, in a TV show, in a story, we care a lot about all of those things. And we want to know all of the gritty details. We want to know when their pulse quickens and we want to know when they touch and we want to know what they say to each other and what they understood the other person to be saying, even if they didn't mean uh, what they said in a in that subtext vein again. But the primary area of interest that I found with romances is that there is always an exchange of power going on when there is a romance. And it's an exchange of power that has to happen on both sides. That there are a lot of power exchanges in stories where there's a character or group of characters or a an organization or something that extends protection to another character that protects 
that other character that endows that character with power. In a romance, though, both parties have to be very powerful and they have to be willing to give power to each other in order to make the romance work. And a lot of the tension and buildup and satisfaction that we feel as an audience comes from this power exchange, either from power being extended and rejected, or from power being extended and accepted, or being extended, accepted, misused sometimes. Of course, the best is when the power is extended, accepted, and then reciprocated which is what happens eventually in Pride and Prejudice. But we have basically every other variation of the power exchange leading up to the eventual acceptance and reciprocation of the power exchange between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy at the end of Pride and Prejudice. It would take too long to go through every single movement of uh, power play and power exchange between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy, but I would like to hit some of the the key moments that form their relationship. The first one is at the ball where Mr. Darcy is introduced to Hertfordshire. Mr. Darcy comes to the ball with the attitude that he doesn't like country manners, that he's really only there for Mr. Bingley, and he doesn't want to show any approval for this country dance or these country manners because he doesn't want to support that kind of behavior. Of course, he didn't consciously write this out as a dissertation or anything. That's just his attitude in coming into the country ball. Thus, when he gets there and Mr. Bingley, as it is represented in the movie, Mr. Bingley asks to be introduced to Mrs. Bennet and her daughters. We've touched on the importance of acquaintances in the Regency era before, but it's important to understand how important acquaintances were at this time. Because when someone was introduced to another person, that meant that they were formally establishing an acquaintance with that person. And once you formally had an acquaintance with that person, you were obligated for the rest of your life to acknowledge that person. And wherever you were and whatever you were doing and whatever town you came to, if you had an acquaintance in that town, then you were obliged to make contact with that acquaintance. And once you made contact with the acquaintance, usually by letters, then there would be an exchange of visits that happened between the acquaintances and you would go visit your acquaintance and then they would come and visit you and the the visits always had to be reciprocated and there were further invitations that would come from those visits such as invitations to dinner or to to outings or to hunting parties or other things of that nature thus forming an acquaintance was a big deal. And when Mr. Bingley comes into the Hertfordshire Ball and he seeks acquaintances with all of these country families and their daughters, it's very gratifying to the families of that region because he's a wealthy man. He didn't have to come to this ball, but he's coming and he's showing great generosity of spirit in acquainting himself with all of these new people. And when Mr. Bingley meets all of Mrs. Bennet's daughters, or rather is introduced to them through Mrs. Bennet, Mrs. Bennet then makes a faux pas, which is to 
address Mr. Darcy without being acquainted to him. And Mr. Darcy is already a little prickly towards these country people. And so he answers as briefly as possible to Mrs. Bennet, declines dancing with Elizabeth, which is what Mrs. Bennet also insinuates that Mr. Darcy should do or asks that Mr. Darcy do. And he leaves the conversation as quickly as possible, which isn't polite. It's not ingratiating. However, it also wasn't ingratiating or polite for Mrs. Bennet to address someone who is so far above her social station and also not introduced to her nor seeking an introduction to her. Unfortunately, Elizabeth is the one caught in the crosshairs of this exchange. And by refusing to dance with Elizabeth and being offended by Mrs. Bennet, Mr. Darcy has shown that he has the power in this situation over Elizabeth already, even before they have met. Thus, a little while later in the ball, when Mr. Bingley comes up to Mr. Darcy and demands that he dance, because Darcy hasn't been dancing the whole time, which in the Regency era was very offensive for a gentleman because they were expected to dance as many dances as possible. When Mr. Bingley demands that Darcy dance, Darcy says to stand up in an assembly like this would be insupportable. And Mr. Bingley scolds him for this remark and then he says, oh, look, there's Jane's sister because he's been dancing with Jane, whom he calls Miss Bennet. He says, there, there is one of her sisters. She's very handsome too. Of course, complimenting Elizabeth, saying she's very pretty. Mr. Darcy glances at Elizabeth and within earshot of Elizabeth, because she's overhearing this entire conversation, within earshot of Elizabeth refuses Mr. Bingley's demands to dance, looks at Elizabeth, kind of sizes her up, and then takes this very inopportune moment to execute a, a, a bit of revenge on Mrs. Bennet, as I think of it, because he's very impolite. He says, oh, she's tolerable, I suppose, but not handsome enough to tempt me. Mr. Bingley eventually has to give up on Mr. Darcy, and Elizabeth is left with this extremely rude remark from a rich, handsome man whom she hasn't even formally met yet, and who has already decided that she is not even worthy of basic politeness, which would be to dance at a ball. So here we have another establishment of Darcy's power as a rich man, as a handsome man, as a high society man over uh, Elizabeth, who is a poor daughter of a lesser country gentleman. Elizabeth, however, doesn't take this lying down. And Elizabeth, even though she basically has no other power ranking in their society like Darcy does, because Darcy has these powers of wealth, of class of being male that was a significant power card for him of being well educated well traveled he has all of these cards so to speak that make him powerful and elizabeth has none of those she is the daughter of a landed gentleman that's good but he's not a rich landed gentleman so she she basically has only herself in her favor 
But what makes Elizabeth so fun to watch is that she never bows down to her situation. She never loses a fundamental self-respect that allows her to demand engagement from whomever she's with. And thus, when Mr. Darcy makes all of these these subtle little power plays at the ball and basically leaves Elizabeth on her own out in the corner, out in the cold, not able to dance because no one has asked her and now insulted because Mr. Darcy has insulted her. Elizabeth doesn't take it lying down. Instead, she laughs about it. And laughing about things is almost like Elizabeth's superpower because it changes her ability to meet a situation or meet a, a person and allows her to hold her own dignity while still moving with whatever is happening at the time. In this case, it's not that Elizabeth denies the insult to her, nor is it that she ignores it or that she insults or retaliates against Mr. Darcy. She doesn't do any of those things. Instead, she takes the insult, goes right past Mr. Darcy and has this twinkle in her eye the whole time over to her friends and she starts telling them about this hilarious joke like you won't even believe what hoity-toity Mr. Darcy just said about me. And she uses these situations that would have made other women very uncomfortable or insecure and and twists those situations to her advantage because she laughs about them. She shows that she is superior to her situations by finding humor in those situations and finding humor in the people around her. And when Mr. Darcy watches her go past him and start whispering and laughing or giggling with her friends, and they're sending furtive glances over to Mr. Darcy, he knows that they're talking about what he just said and he's taken aback because he has never been undermined in this way he's never been laughed at in this way and that's probably the beginning of where he starts to notice elizabeth because she doesn't react in the typical way she finds a lot of humor in the people and the situations around her which is very unusual for the fastidious and reserved Mr. Darcy, who's who's all about being a serious member of the upper classes. Later on, there's another ball in which there's another opportunity for Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth to dance. And at that juncture, Mr. Darcy says that he would love to dance with Elizabeth. But Elizabeth, who has already decided to dislike Mr. Darcy, refuses to dance with him. And so she has a, a little pull of her own power in refusing to dance with Mr. Darcy now that he is actually willing to dance with her. And without taking any offense from this gesture, Mr. Darcy continues to think about Elizabeth and even confesses to Mr. Bingley's sister that Miss Elizabeth Bennet has very fine eyes and that they are a a pleasure to behold. So he concedes at this point much more power to Elizabeth based on her appearance and her attitude and accentuated by her playfulness or her manner. He concedes much more power to her than he did at the beginning. And this continues to cycle up. There are several conversations between Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth 
While they happen to be staying in the same house together, Elizabeth is taking care of her sister Jane while she is sick, and Jane happened to be at Mr. Bingley's house when it happened. So Elizabeth comes to stay at Mr. Bingley's house, and in the evenings, she and Mr. Darcy consistently have these engagements where they make little power plays in their conversation. And, and Mr. Darcy consistently attempts to compliment or ingratiate Elizabeth, and Elizabeth consistently fends off his compliments and spins them on their heads so that they are saying something other than they meant or so that she is actually critiquing Mr. Darcy or other things. And through these conversations, they're pitting their powers against each other. And Mr. Darcy finds that he doesn't have the same effect on Elizabeth that he does on most people with all of his power cards and that she doesn't really even seem to notice all of the power cards that he holds. She just speaks to him with whatever she has to really say and she critiques him in a much more direct fashion than he's used to and she also plays with him or laughs at him in ways that he is not accustomed to and all of these things intrigue him about Elizabeth. They also annoy him in some ways. Sometimes they go too far but before Mr. Darcy leaves Netherfield Park with Mr. Vingley, before they move out for the winter to London, the power plays between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy have made them more or less equals. Mr. Darcy has all of these worldly advantages, but Elizabeth has all of these personal advantages. And thus, when they meet again while visiting other relations, and Elizabeth begins to taunt or play with uh, Mr. Darcy's conversation again, as they are in the same place, it's the final stand for Mr. Darcy on his power plays of social status and and wealth, etc. In this juncture, while they're visiting mutual friends, he can't handle anymore how powerful Elizabeth has become in his life because he is so engaged by her manner and so interested in what she's saying, so intrigued by these jokes that she's playing on him all the time that he he almost can't help it he just has to propose but he hasn't really given up his power he's just admitted the fact that Elizabeth has power thus the proposal scene between Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth is extremely unusual because you would expect in a proposal scene that Mr. Darcy would be giving a lot of the power to Elizabeth. That's typically what happens in a proposal. And that's why we have all of these customs about like giving something that's really expensive, like a ring and getting down on one knee for the, usually the man who's proposing. All of those things show a deference to the power of the woman. And thus you would expect in this proposal between Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth for Mr. Darcy to be giving Elizabeth or offering Elizabeth some of the power, some of the influence over his life. But what actually happens in Mr. Darcy's conversation is that he spends most of the time justifying why he should have all of the power. 
He talks about his wealth, about his connections, about his family, about his estates, about his superiority of everything. And then he decries all of Elizabeth's uh, worldly powers. He complains of her relations. He complains about her financial situation. He complains about her family. He basically strips all of her worldly powers and reserves all of his own. And then as an afterthought at the end, admits that he is desperately in love with her and therefore has to propose to her. In other words, uh, he spends 90% of his time justifying why he should be the more powerful party in this relationship and then 10% of his time admitting that Elizabeth has some power. And this is, of course, completely unromantic, not only to Elizabeth, but also to us. And the whole scene, we're just writhing in agony because it's so awkward, but we can't leave because we have to hear what happens next. And by the end of the exchange, it's obvious that he expects Elizabeth to accept because he has all of the weight in this competition. However, Elizabeth surprises him again. She employs all of her talents for politeness and calm and propriety and refuses his proposal. And when he demands further explanation, she gives it to him, but she holds her ground the whole time, even without all of the worldly powers that he has taken away from her, which she can't reclaim because all of the things that he says are true. But even without all of those worldly powers, she holds her own in this conversation and takes the power back to her side by accusing Mr. Darcy of being unjust to his friend Mr. Bingley and her sister Jane, by being unjust to Mr. Wickham, and by in general behaving in an ungentlemanlike manner. And despite all of Mr. Darcy's power, these three accusations cut him to the core because they attack his fundamental values, his fundamental character as a human being, which he values more than any of those other things. He values those more than his social standing, more than his wealth, more than his connections. He thinks of himself as a very noble, upright, honest gentleman. And to hear Elizabeth talk about him like this shakes Mr. Darcy more than anything else she could have said. As the two of them come to terms with the accusations that the other has laid against them, Elizabeth has to own up to the fact that she has been excessively vain and unaware of the impropriety of her family and their situation as it looks to the rest of the world. She also, for the first time, recognizes that she has some power, even over those whom she thought she had no power, that her power is not derived from any of her worldly recommendations, but rather from her own ability to hold conversation, to think about things, to analyze situations. And not coincidentally, these are all things that we know Jane Austen really valued. She really valued the mental development of women and often complained of the fact 
that many women, especially in the upper classes who had the opportunity to read books and to develop their minds, that those women would spend most of their time on useless accomplishments rather than on edifying their minds. And so Elizabeth's demonstration of power here is where Jane Austen feels like the power is for women. And I think a lot of people might might agree. And Elizabeth, for the first time, realizes that she has sway with Mr. Darcy in a way that she had never before supposed. There are many things that happen in between the proposal and this next scene, but in the next scene I want to talk about, Elizabeth is visiting Pemberley, which is Mr. Darcy's home. So she has kind of conceded enough power to Mr. Darcy, at least in private. She doesn't think that Mr. Darcy will ever find out that she was there, but she at least concedes enough power to him privately that she's interested in seeing where he lives and where he comes from, the people that he lives around. And unexpectedly in her tour of Pemberley, she ends up giving him a lot more credit and power than she thought that she would give him. Her opinion of Mr. Darcy really starts to change as she views the love and the respect and the honor with which Mr. Darcy is held by all of those who know him well. These first-hand accounts, as well as the beauty of the house and the depictions of Mr. Darcy in painting and other things, they all crumble away the prejudice that she has still been hanging on to even after reading Mr. Darcy's letters and stubbornly believing in those letters. It's not until she gets to Pemberley that Elizabeth allows a lot of those walls to come down and allows herself to start thinking well of Mr. Darcy. And the crowning moment of their visit to Pemberley is an unexpected run-in with Mr. Darcy himself. Elizabeth is initially mortified that they would run into him while they're touring his house. But after Mr. Darcy collects himself, he goes into the house and changes because at the moment that they meet, he had just jumped out of a pond. He had just been going swimming. So he wasn't suitable to be seen. And he goes inside and he changes and he comes back out in a rush to stop them from leaving right away. And in this crowning moment at Pemberley, all of Elizabeth's crumbling prejudices towards Mr. Darcy fully come down as he asks questions about her family. He's extremely polite about her stay in Derbyshire. He asks where she's staying. Then he asks to be introduced to her aunt and uncle. And Elizabeth's aunt and uncle were not landed gentry. They were part of the gentlemanly class because her uncle is an attorney. But when Mr. Darcy asks to be introduced to her aunt and uncle. Now you understand why that is so significant because in forming this acquaintance with them, he is committing to acknowledge or to to publicly know her aunt and uncle forever after. And Elizabeth is surprised by how cordial he is to her aunt and uncle. And he not only introduces himself to them, he asks if her uncle would like to come fishing with him. And he shows them around the grounds. He gives them this personal tour and he's very kind and gracious to her aunt and uncle and by way to Elizabeth, thus 
fully giving Elizabeth a lot of power in this situation because he makes her in charge. She is in charge of the introduction. She is in charge of allowing or refusing him access to her life. And it makes a big impression on Elizabeth to walk around the grounds with uh, Mr. Darcy. And he asks also if she likes the house, meaning that he values her opinion. And as they are leaving, he helps her into the carriage rather than allowing one of the groomsmen or one of the servants to do it. He personally hands her into the carriage. And then he asks if he can bring his sister to meet them at their inn in the local town, which was also a very gracious gesture because he's offering to make his sister a permanent acquaintance for Elizabeth. And he says that his sister really wants to meet her because, as it is implied, he has told his sister about Elizabeth. And all of these things surprise Elizabeth because they have given Elizabeth much more power than she expected to receive from Mr. Darcy. And as the carriage pulls away, Elizabeth turns around and looks back at Mr. Darcy, which is the first of many acknowledgments while they are in Derbyshire that she is willing to return the power to him too. As they continue their stay in Derbyshire, there are many such moments of exchange where they validate each other and Elizabeth is a little bit slower than Mr. Darcy to start doing that. But once she's sure that Mr. Darcy's manner is a permanent change in him, then she really starts to open up and she shows that she's willing to protect Georgiana from shame or embarrassment in social situations, just as Mr. Darcy would protect her. She shows that Mr. Darcy's personal affairs, his history with Mr. Wickham, is not something she is about to share or ridicule or make fun of. She shows that she believes Mr. Darcy's letter and that she trusts him in a way that she never has before. And trust is a huge bestowal of power on another person. All of these developments in Derbyshire make it just more painful when the letter about Lydia's elopement comes to Elizabeth in the inn and Mr. Darcy who seems to have been coming to the inn to renew his proposals gets there and he finds Elizabeth in tears and of course has to waylay all of his plans while he figures out what's wrong and then he leaves very abruptly when he discovers that Wickham is behind most of this or at least party to much of it and Elizabeth assumes that his departure signifies the removal of his power to her, or rather the removal of his trust in her, the removal of his interest in her or his willingness to be associated with her. And this happens at the critical moment when Elizabeth is just figuring out that she actually does think very well of Mr. Darcy, that she could even love him and that She's still on the road to feeling like she loves him, but she certainly thinks better of him than she does of most men in her life. Through the rest of the film, we of course have Mr. Darcy secretly protecting Elizabeth by assisting Lydia to assuage her disgrace of, of living with Mr. Wickham and Mr. Wickham, of course, had no intention of marrying Lydia until Mr. Darcy showed up and made them 
get married by agreeing to pay off Mr. Wickham's debts. But in that episode, much like the Pemberley episode, we have Mr. Darcy humbling himself on all of these worldly counts that he was so proud of for the first half of the movie. When Elizabeth comes to Pemberley, he sacrifices his worldly station in order to be acquainted with members of the lower classes and ingratiate himself to them. He goes to the inn multiple times, which wouldn't be a typical place for a rich man to go visit. But he sacrifices his public visibility as an aloof rich man in order to show Elizabeth that he cares about her. And in the episode with Lydia and Mr. Wickham, he sacrifices his wealth in order to assuage Elizabeth's grief. The final blow comes when Lady Catherine de Bourgh, who is Mr. Darcy's aunt, comes to confront Elizabeth about a rumored engagement between her and Mr. Darcy, and Elizabeth refuses to make any promises to Lady Catherine de Bourgh about not marrying Mr. Darcy. She tells Lady Catherine that she isn't engaged, but she won't promise anything else. And in the end, Lady Catherine is so miffed at the Bennets that she goes straight to Darcy and tells him about how improper and how imprudent it would be to make a match with Elizabeth. And as the final power gesture from Darcy to Elizabeth, instead of heeding the advice of his connections or his relations, which were the other thing that made him so conscious of his class, they were his worldly position, his wealth, and his connections. And in this final gesture, he completely ignores one of the most powerful and wealthy connections that he has in his aunt, who also would have been his mother-in-law if plans had gone according to Lady Catherine de Bourgh's hopes. But he completely defies Lady Catherine's chastisement that he not propose to Elizabeth and sacrifices this as the, as the final bestowal of power on Elizabeth to show her that she has really won him over and as they go on their walk later on in the in the films when elizabeth volunteers her gratitude about the lydia wickham affair and how grateful she is that mr darcy was willing to extend himself and find them first of all and then pay for their wedding next of all and then pay for wickham's commission so that he had a respectable job all of those things were facilitated by Mr. Darcy, and she thanks him profusely for all of this. And gratitude is another great way of bestowing power. So she bestows this power on Mr. Darcy, and he responds by saying that he really only thought about Elizabeth during the whole exchange. They're quiet for a second, and then he renews his proposal. And in the next few minutes of the film, we see a full surrender of power from both parties as they reconcile to each other. And Elizabeth gives way to all of his claims about the impropriety of her 
family, and he gives way to all of her claims about his ungentlemanlike behavior, and we see how well-matched they are as a couple because they are both so powerful and significant as characters, but also so perfectly complementary. They complete and they challenge and they improve each other in significant ways. And when they allow the other to have power in their lives, they improve even more rapidly. And it's really satisfying to have that full conclusion of, of power exchange between Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy by the end of this film. And that's uh, one of the reasons that we mentioned at the beginning that none of the other versions are quite adequate in capturing the full romance of Pride and Prejudice because none of them fully capture the whole buildup of, of power exchange and power struggle between these two characters like the BBC version does or like the book does. But in my opinion, BBC version is even better than the book because the facial expressions and the intonations help so much in understanding what's going on. But in any case, this romantic power exchange is the anchor for the whole movie and allows us to appreciate all of the other characters in their roles because they all play a part in either preventing Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy from reaching this understanding or by subtly pushing them together in sometimes unexpected or paradoxical ways, such as Lady Catherine de Bourgh. It's a lot of fun to, to map out each of those undulations of the power and where the power is lying at the moment. So try watching for that next time too. Just one last uh, note about the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice. There are these beautiful little scenes of Elizabeth watching her mirror scattered throughout the series. I've taken to calling them her mirror moments. And I think that they have a lot of subtext or symbolism to offer the viewers because they progress in such an interesting way. At the beginning of the shows, we see Elizabeth watching her mirror and she seems to be kind of examining herself, trying to figure out how pretty she is or how tolerable she is. She quickly fatigues of this and blows out her candle so that her face is left in darkness. And there's no explanation given of this scene. No dialogue, no commentary, no thought commentary in her head. We're, we're just left with this scene itself. And it's a beautiful little vignette that I think they've done really well through the series. Because each time she's in front of her mirror, it's a little bit different. And the last time that we see her at her mirror... She actually has two mirrors that are visible from our vantage point as a viewer, and both of them reflect Elizabeth's face, and in both of them she's smiling. And it's the first time that she's been in the mirror smiling, and it's also the first time that we've seen her reflected in the mirror without her looking in the mirror, which has plenty of plenty of subtext on its own, but it seems to represent the huge amount of growth that Elizabeth has gone through in the course of this story.
She's no longer insecurely prideful and looking at the mirror for validation, nor is she self-critical or or fatigued of herself as she is in some of the other scenes. In fact, she's not even paying attention to herself at all. She's completely given up the vanity that we were seeing in previous scenes with her at her mirror. She's just happy. She's humble. She's grateful. She's telling Jane about her engagement to Mr. Darcy And she's just glowing with happiness that even though they've had all of these bumps and hard turns and missteps and misunderstandings and misjudgments, that even with all of these things and her own sister's extremely poor behavior in kind of eloping with Mr. Wickham, even through all of these twists and turns, Mr. Darcy still loved her enough to to renew his proposal to her, which in itself was unusual. But all of those factors combined would have made it kind of unfathomable for any other gentleman of that time to propose to Elizabeth and especially to propose again to Elizabeth. So to have Mr. Darcy, who's so well set up and whose character, as Elizabeth now understands, is very noble and honest and good, to have him still esteeming her enough to renew this proposal is very meaningful to Elizabeth and shows her in this final gesture what she has been developing for some time before the renewal ever happens, which is that Mr. Darcy actually is the perfect man for her to be married to because he is exactly complementary to her gifts and challenging to her gifts in, in all the right ways. I won't give you all of the answers or all of my theories about what I think it means, but I think it's really fun to watch for those moments, the ones that are repeated like that throughout the series, because they're obviously intentional from the filmmakers. They want us to pick up that something is happening or that something is changing with this character, and I think they've done a beautiful, albeit subtle job with Elizabeth in these mirror moments to show her growth as a character. Hopefully something in this discussion has been useful to you. I really love Pride and Prejudice. I think it's a wonderful story. And the more I watch it and the more I read it and dig into it, the more it has to teach, which I find is true of most of the really excellent stories, whether they be old classic stories or or new stories. I hope that this inspires you to go and learn something from this story too and to think more deeply about how we can learn from the past or past stories in order to inform our futures. And with that, I wish you a happy story talk. Good luck.